Let's turn to the book of James this morning, chapter 2. I had planned to go all the way down through verse 13, uh, but I changed my mind. And uh, we're only going to look at verses 1 through 7. And that still may sound like a surprise to you because we normally don't cover that much territory. Uh, But again, remember, we're not trying to delve that deeply into James. The the main thing I want to do is to see some of the many uh, exhortations and... uh, that John, uh, James gives us, and uh, I think we can do so without um, dragging this out to some great extent. So I'd like for us, though, just to read verses 1 through 7 as we see something of the nature of having respect of persons to others. The next time we'll pick up with the royal law, uh, Lord willing, in verse beginning in verse uh, 8. But for now, let's read verses 1 through 7 of chapter 2. My brethren, have not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with respect of persons. For if there come unto your assembly a man with a gold ring in goodly apparel, and there come in also a poor man in vile raiment, and ye have respect to him that weareth the gay clothing, and say unto him, Sit thou here in a good place, and say to the poor, Stand thou there, or sit here under my footstool. Are you not then partial in yourselves and are become judges of evil thoughts? Hearken, my beloved brethren, hath not God chosen the poor of this world rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he hath promised to them that love him? But ye have despised the poor. Do not rich men oppress you and draw you before the judgment seats? Do not they blaspheme that worthy name by which ye are called? As we see from the end of chapter 1, James has set forth unto us some uh, very brief but very telling evidences of pure religion. And, of course, you know I mean by that true Christianity. Again, I know the word religion, that word, or the word religious, has taken a bad meaning today. But, again, just because the world misuses it doesn't mean that we have to. So we're going to use it in its biblical sense, meaning here what it means to truly worship or honor or serve or reverence God. Or today we would think of it as Christianity. Well, what James has done here is giving us some very pointed things as to what it really means to have true religion. To show us that what the religion that we do possess, whether it's real or not. And as we said, there are many folks running around thinking that they truly worship, that they truly honor, and they truly serve the God of heaven, and do not. And brethren, we don't want that to be true of us here. And so James has very graciously, though pointedly, given us some ideas, some evidences to which to show us whether our religion is pure or not. Now, the evidences he chooses to show us are basically three. The first one, as we saw in verse 26, is the keeping or the controlling of our tongue. In other words, it's dealing with our speech. And it's dealing not only with what we do say, but what we, and also the fact of how we say it, all those things that enter in in the idea of having the tongue under government. And again, if we think about it, this is very apt. That is, what we say does reflect on what and who we are. So this is really then a very telling sign 
to us. For instance, our Lord in Luke says, A good man out of the good treasure of his heart bringeth forth that which is good. And an evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart bringeth forth that which is evil. For of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaketh. So we see here that James and the Lord Jesus are not at opposition here. They would have believed the same thing in regards to this. Or think of the other words of our Lord at the uh, parallel account of that. He says, O generation of vipers, as he's speaking here to the, uh, the Jews, the Pharisees, how can ye, being evil, speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaketh. A good man out of the good treasure of the heart bringeth forth good things, and an evil man out of the evil treasure of the, bringeth forth evil things. But I say unto you, that every idle word that men shall speak, they shall give account thereof in the day of judgment. For by thy words thou shalt be justified, and by thy words thou shalt be condemned. So once again, we see here that James and the Lord Jesus are certainly at one with each other. And then he tells us in, uh, that another thing regarding pure religion, verse 27, he says, pure religion... And undefiled before God and the Father is to visit the fatherless and widows in their afflictions. Now, he's saying this either specifically, you need to go visit fatherless and widows when they have their afflictions. Or he's saying something in general, either one, it's both true. That you just simply need to be serving one another in love. Obviously, if we go visit those who are widows and fatherless in their affliction, that's an act of servitude. That's a demonstration of our love. John tells us, you remember, that one of the marks of being a true believer is the fact that we love the brethren. And that love will come out then in deeds. In fact, he warns us of that very thing. 1 John chapter 3. And verse, uh, beginning in verse 16. Hereby perceive we the love of God, because He laid down His life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoso hath this world's good, and seeth his brother have need, and shutteth up his bowels of compassion from him, how dwelleth the love of God in him? My little children, let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. Hereby we know that we are of the truth, and shall assure our hearts before him. So we see here that evidently John too sees that loving the brethren, watching over the needs of others, certainly is a telltale sign, is it not, in these things. Speaking of feeding the, or taking care of the widows, we know that even Paul speaks to Timothy. In 1 Timothy, when Paul is dealing with the matters of what it means to be a church and all that sorts of stuff and regarding church, our churchianity, one of the things that he reminds Timothy is that the widows, who are widows indeed, are to be taken care of. There is to be an office set forth for that very thing. So again, we would see that Paul here is certainly not, or yeah, Paul is not differing with James in these kinds of things. And then he gives us a third thing, the third evidence in verse 27 of chapter 1, to visit the fatherless and widows, which we just looked at. And then he says, and to keep himself unspotted from the world. Personal and practical holiness in and about our lives is a mark of whether we truly 
are saved or not. We're not to conform ourselves, brethren, to this world. And the more we begin to walk and to think and to talk like the world, the less then are we assuring ourselves and assuring others that we are Christians. Because again, one of the evidences is of being a Christian is that we're going to keep ourselves unspotted from this world. So here again, James is reminding us here of these telltale signs of pure religion. And to have otherwise is to deceive ourselves that we possess this religion that is undefiled before God. Let's look at these two verses again. Verse 26 and 27. I say all this because this is not divorced from the context of chapter 2. So we're taking the time to go over this just to lead you into this very point. If any man among you seem to be religious and brighteth not his tongue, but deceiveth his own heart, this man's religion is vain. If you do not control and govern your tongue, you're deceiving yourself. Your religion is empty. Secondly, pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction. That's number two. And to keep himself unspotted from the world. That's the third evidence. And he's warned us, you remember previously in verse 22 of chapter 1, that we're not to be hearers only in these matters, but to be doers of the word. You see how it is then, brethren. It can be so easy to we could come here to God's house. Be faithful to divine services as we ought to be. Forsaking not the assembling of ourselves together. We may put our hearing caps on this morning and thinking caps as well. And we may even agree and say amen to the very things that we're preaching this morning and what we preached last week. But if we go away not practicing it, James says, we are deceiving ourselves. Now, think how close we can become of looking real. We can come to church. We can hear God's Word. We can nod our heads in agreement. We can even stand around afterwards and talk about these things. But brethren, if we don't go home and put these things into practices, he says, Bit ye doers of the Word and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. That's what we've done. We see here James exposing the danger of saying we believe the gospel. Making a claim, you remember, of verse 18 of being born again. Having this experience in our lives. We can even brag about being good hearers and hearing the truth. That we go to a church that where the gospel is preached, where righteousness is exalted, where sin is hated, and we preach those things. And yet being a hearer of all that and not a doer, What's he tell us? We're deceiving ourselves. What do you think of those then who don't go to good places and don't even listen? Well, the fact of the matter, that's not who he's dealing with. They're already lost. They're already without profession. James is dealing with those who make one. And he's telling us here to be very, very people. people uh, very, very careful in these things. And so all of that, again, we need to pour into our thinking when we come to chapter 2. 
All that he has been speaking is just a nice flow of thought into this chapter 2 that we're being looked at. And brethren, we're not to be deceived. And deceived people will be. There are people deceived now. There were people deceived in the first century. There's people deceived now. And there will be people who will be deceived. But let us pray that we will not be among them here. Now, James begins this chapter with another careful probing in our conscience regarding our practice. The first thing he cautions us about isn't what we would probably think he ought to caution us about. Here again, how we need to see that the Bible is sometimes so different than what we might think. I suppose if I was writing this letter, I definitely would not have put in this one. As something to be concerned about. But notice what James says. He speaks to us, he cautions us about the sin of partiality. The sin of having a respect to persons. So that's what we're going to look at this morning. The sin of being a respecter of persons. Now, you may not think this is very serious, but James does. Here's where the danger comes in, I think, that we can put these unserious things aside and not pay much attention to them and then wake up in hell. So let's be careful this morning about these things. So we're going to look at verses 1 through 7 in a pretty plain fashion, hopefully not taking all day to do this. But I want you to notice, first of all, in verse 1, how he entreats them. How does James entreat the, these readers in regards to this sin? He says, my brethren, first of all. Notice what he says, my brethren. And again, he has actually two ways of catching their thinking. But the first one is, my brethren. He begins by addressing them using this affectionate term towards them. He's not trying to chase them up. Look, you stinking sinners! You better start stop having uh, respect of person. He doesn't do that, does he? Woke up the children this morning, didn't he? How does he do it? He uses very loving terms towards them. My brethren, look, listen to me. You who are beloved of God and beloved of me, listen to me, he says. Don't have respect of persons. Now, he's done this before, has he? Look in verse 16, the last chapter. Do not err, my beloved brethren. Verse 1, or excuse me, verse 2. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations. So, notice how he entreats them here. He's trying to get their ear. He wants them to listen. He's not trying to drive them off. He's trying to get their attention in a loving and an affectionate way by saying, Look, fellow brethren in Christ. But then he goes further and he speaks to them in the terms of what? Have not the faith of the Lord our... Excuse me. Have not the faith... And the thing I want to look at. The faith of our Lord Jesus Christ... The Lord of glory. He now speaks to them regarding Christ. Now, if James is really the half-brother of our Lord here, which he very may, this may be the very same James, 
he doesn't lean here to that point, does he? In fact, he goes to what is common to these brethren. That he is the Lord of our faith. He is the faith, it is the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is the Lord of glory. He exalts Christ Jesus. And the way and manner then he gets to attract their attention on how they ought to be treating one another, he takes them not only to the fact that they're fellow brethren in the Lord, and thus they shouldn't have respect of persons, but he regards them in things of the things of Christ, who is the exalted one. If anyone ought to be exalted, it isn't the rich. It ought to be Christ. Why? Because He's the Lord of glory. And also mentions here the faith of our Lord. The faith of our Lord Jesus Christ. Here we see the means of every blessing that we receive in Christ. And it's faith, of course, isn't it? If it is believing that he's speaking of here in verse 1, when he says the word faith, that is, our believing regarding our faith in Christ... Or if it's meant here a form of doctrine, that which is believed, in particular the gospel, it's still the same. This is what James, you see, forms the reality of our religion all about. The evidence, of course, will be seen through our actions. Faith, though, is how we enter into it. Without faith, Hebrews 11, verse 6 says, it's impossible to please God. Thus, this is the form of entreaty that he gives them here to heed the exhortation that's coming. First, your brethren, and then remember the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the Lord of glory. Now, secondly, let me deal with this phrase here that is very difficult. What does he mean here in verse 1? Did it look puzzling when you looked at verse 1? My brethren, have not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with respect to persons kind of have to scratch your head over that one, don't you? Well, if it, it sounds strange, I admit, to our ears and looks strange to our eyes, the commentators tell us that the phrase, have not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, is a very difficult phrase in the Greek. Thus, then, we see why it is a very difficult phrase in the English. My brother not ought to tell us something that if it's going to be hard in the Greek, then it ought to, we ought to expect it to be hard to understand in the English. It just goes to show you that there's equality there in this. So there is a reason why it's difficult in the English, because it's difficult in the Greek that underlines it. So that shouldn't be such a problem, though. You say, well, that doesn't help me. What does it mean, though? What does he mean when he says here, my brethren, have not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ? Don't have his faith? Is that what he's saying here? No. The context gives us a bit of a help. He is speaking about not having a mind that respects the rich over the poor. Would you grant me that one? If you read on, he says, If there come unto your assembly a man with a gold ring and goodly apparel, there come in you also a poor man in vile raiment, and you have respect to him that weareth the gay clothing or the rich clothing. You say, look, you said here, this is, this is reserved for the rich folks. And I want you sitting here. We can see you. We can watch you put the money in the till. All that stuff. But here comes someone who's poor. Hey, you get back over in the corner somewhere. You know, we don't want to see you. Don't disturb things. Just sit there and be quiet. No, in fact, sit under my footstool. That'll even be better. I can keep an eye on you. Well, obviously that would be wrong, wouldn't it? 
And so that's what he's going to deal with here in this context. Don't act like that. And we saw here that he brings in, as we noted, his way of entreating us not to do so. And one of that, of course, is the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ. Thus then, have not the faith of our Lord Jesus, he means, have it not with respect of persons. In other words, don't think the respect of persons goes with the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, because it doesn't. And that's what he means here. When he says, have not the faith, he says, this isn't how you act if you have the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ. How unchristlike it is then to show partiality in this matter. So that's what he means here by this difficult phrase for us. Have not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ. When we, demon, when we show respect of persons, that is not Christ-like. That is not the faith that we profess to believe about Christ. And this then now, I hope, brings us to the main point. Brethren, we don't need to be partial in regards to people who come in the door. And he demonstrates what he means with a very real and purposed circumstance. Probably something that took place. Probable, very probable. And he sees it, and we see it here in verses 2 and 3. So he's going to illustrate. So if you children want to know what it means to have respect of persons or what it means to be partial to someone, here's the example. We've done and dealt with it a little bit, but let's look at it again because this is his point. And he's going to travel around this point for the next few verses. So this is if we don't get this, we'll miss it all. For if there come into your assembly a man with a gold ring in goodly apparel, in other words, we see a man who comes in who has all the appearance of being rich, affluent, having money. And he says, then also there comes in someone who is in a poor man in vile raiment. That is, he's not very well dressed. It's not that he, uh, he just doesn't have the money to dress properly and to dress well. So he comes to church like he does, in rags possibly. And the point here is, is verse 3. So we have the fellow. We have two men coming in. One is dressed real richly and the other is dressed very poorly. And he says, If ye have respect to him that weareth the gay clothing, that is, who has the gold ring and the goodly apparel, has all the nice clothes, and you say, Sit here in a good place. But the other fellow, you say, Look, you're poor. Though you may not say that to him, but, uh, you know. We take him and we're going to sit him over here somewhere. In fact, we'll put him under our footstool. We'll make him to be where I put my feet. Not a very nice place to be, would it? You see what we've done? He says here, are you then, verse 4, are you not partial in yourselves? In other words, we have showed respect to the rich because he's rich. And we've disrespected the poor because he's poor. Nothing to do here with whether one is godly over the other, whether one is following the commandments or not, whether one is obedient to the things of Christ. It is a matter of how well he's dressed, showing forth whether he has money or not. And if we do that, 
James reminds us here in verse 4 is that we're partial. And so he gives a question then in light of verses 2 and 3. Are ye then partial in yourselves and are become judges of evil thoughts? When you do this, when you see the rich man come in with all the nice clothes and you say, hey, I've got a very nice place for you to sit. And if you think that's up front, then you sit him up front. If you think it's in the back, then you'll sit him in the back. If you think it's in the middle, you'll sit him in the middle. You want to put him in the most comfortable place. Why? Because he's rich. And so you're showing, as we would say, favoritism here towards him. But if you take this other fellow who's dressed the poor, you don't care where he sits. You just want him just away from you. You don't want him in the nice place with the rich. It'll offend someone. You want to stick him where... It doesn't really matter. And he asks us here, if that's your theory, if that's how you operate, if that's what you do, he gives the question here in verse 4, are you not partial then? Not only that, but he says, are you not become judges of evil thoughts? In other words, don't you judge evilly here? Isn't your thinking and all of this wrong morally? Now, what is the apparent answer to verse 4? James doesn't answer for them, does he? Because the answer is so obviously. If you treat someone differently because of their value or what they are worth, then rest assured you're being partial in yourselves and you think wickedly. Again, do we think of that often? Would we think of it in light of verse 4? Now, in the application, I'm going to make you think about it. But just for now, think that over. Look at the question again in verse 4. Really two parts. Are you not partial? And don't you judge wickedly in this way? And the answer is yes. You are a respecter of persons, if this is your habit. If this is how you treat folks who come into our assembly, then you are partial in your thinking. No ands, ifs, or buts about it. And then notice, fifthly, He reasons with them in light of God's favor to them about this matter. I would say he hits them in one of the most gracious areas of God's redemption of his people. Hearken, my beloved brethren. Notice again, he's trying to catch their attention with affection. Hath not God chosen the poor of this world rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which He hath promised to them that love Him? What's the answer there? The answer is, yes, He has. He has chosen the poor of this world rich in faith. Now, that's not why He chose them. This is just the results here. He doesn't just, you know, His election isn't based on whether you're poor or rich. That's not the efficient cause in God choosing His elect. The only reason why we know He chose His elect is because He loved them, according to Deuteronomy. 
you're one of the elect this morning, all you know why is because He loved you. Verse 5 is a description. It's descriptive. This is who He's chosen. It's those who are poor in this world, rich in faith. What a contrast. He's chosen the ones who are just the common folks in life. But notice further description. Who are rich though in faith. That very thing that he speaks of in verse 1. Notice how he begins to twist the knife in them. This is who he's chosen. This is descriptive of who you are. You're not the rich and the mighty. He doesn't call the noble, and he can and does in some sense, but in the majority, it's just the common Joes of this life, isn't it? Who by the grace of God become rich in faith. And goes on, and heirs of the kingdom which he hath promised to them that love him. Again, this is descriptive. Those whom He has chosen are those who love Him. That's not why He chose them. He he first loved us, and then we love Him. So again, He's not talking about the the grounds of His election to us. This is just descriptive. Don't get into your uh, Arminian mode here and go hog wild and say, Oh, look, see, He chose because of those things. Well, then we'd all want to sell what we got to be chosen of God, then wouldn't we? At least I hope we would. Better go to heaven poor than go to hell rich, isn't it? So we know that's not what he means. Money doesn't buy redemption at all. Or the lack of money, for that matter, buy redemption. But he's being descriptive to us, or of us, or them at this case, of who they are. He says, this is who God deals with. It's not the rich who normally who may come through your doors and sit with you in your assembly, but he's chosen the common folks of this life. And then notice, he moves on from this point and gets more pointed with how and descriptive of the rich. But you've despised the poor. He's saying how you live. Do not rich men oppress you and draw you before the judgment seats? Do they not blaspheme that worthy name by which ye are called? Notice, first of all, he gives a quick jab to their jaw, speaking in boxing terms here, to which he accuses them. If this is how you act, if you respect the rich and go overlook the poor, he says you have despised the poor. The very people whom God loves. Now, don't misunderstand that. That's the point he's driving home here. From verse 5, we see descriptively, this is whom God chooses who are poor in this world. Okay, verse 6 says, that's who you despise when you act this way. When you show respect to the rich, you want their favor, you want their smiles upon you. What you've done then is despise not only your your fellow believer, but even yourself in that matter. And then he begins to deal with them and reason with them further in verse 6. 
Do not rich men, those whom you are respecting and you think so highly of, don't they, don't they oppress you? Aren't they the ones who are taking you to court? They're the ones who can afford the good lawyers and, and persecute you and prosecute you. They're, the, they're some of the reason of your misfortunes in this life. Your hurts and your heartaches is because of how the rich treat you. And then he says in verse 7, Further, do not they blaspheme that worthy name by which you are called? Don't they make light of your religion? So, as he brings forth these questions here and this accusation in verse 6, it's done so to make them think what they have been doing. Very strong words here, isn't it? Serious matters deserve strong reasonings. And so this is what he's doing. So if someone comes in our assembly and they have the gold ring and the nice clothes and we treat them differently than someone else who comes among us who looks poor, we're putting in our lot with those who blaspheme God. Now who here this morning but say, well, I'm going to go out today and I think I'm going to blaspheme God. I'm going to take His name in vain. I'm going to profane His day. Whatever it takes for me to show God that I disdain any and everything about Him. You'd say, ah, I wouldn't dare do that. Oh, but you do when you have respect to the rich over the poor. Well, that's what he says in verses 1 through 7. Now, let's apply all that. It's pretty simplistic now that I went through it a little better. I hope what he means there. Well, what does it mean to us now? Well, first of all, let us be careful in examining our own hearts that all is well with us if we're not guilty of some of the gross sins of our society. Well, I'm not running out there with those who are terrible fornicators and adulterers. I'm not running around with the, those who take other people's lives. I'm not on, out on Sunday blaspheming God. I'm not sitting at some ball game uh, breaking the Sabbath day. That's not me. You'll never catch me doing that. Notice what James or uh, Paul says in Colossians. And again, it's good we don't do those things. We're certainly not saying, okay, go ahead and do them, since that's not really the issue here. But remember what he says in Colossians chapter 3. He says, Wherefore, there, Mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, and covetousness, which is idolatry, for which things sake the wrath of God cometh on the children of disobedience. Don't be mistaken about that. That's going to happen. So don't you live like them. Again, Ephesians 5 and verse 5 and 6. For this you know that no whoremonger, nor unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater hath any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no man deceive you with vain words, for because of these things, that is, these particular sins, the wrath of God cometh upon the children of disobedience. Be not ye therefore partakers with them. 
But here's where we can be deceived. We may say, I'm not doing that. What you just named there in Ephesians and what you've been naming there in Colossians, I would not dare do by the grace of God. And so you may think all is well with your heart because you're not doing these things. But note, James is not so much speaking of these things, though he does with hint-wise in verse 27 about keeping himself pure. He goes further, doesn't he? Even to the things about visiting the widow and the fatherless and keeping his tongue and being a respecter of persons. You see, you may not be guilty of the gross things, but are you careful in this matter as well? Do you prefer the well-to-do than the poor? We need to examine our hearts in light of that. Secondly, this sin of partiality is often associated with the sins found in the ministry. The thought is that sometimes, and it's true, preachers do need to guard themselves about this idea of partiality. In fact, Paul reminds Timothy, don't do things with partiality. And again, dealing with the eldership, I understand that, but that can even be true. And so there is this fact that as pastors and preachers and elders that we need to be careful about how we treat folks. And really, when a rich man comes into the crowd, you know, there would be that temptation to... Be careful with him. And if someone poor comes in, well, he's just poor. It really doesn't matter whether I offend him or not. Well, because, you know, I'd, I'd like to have the, the till filled and the poor ain't going to do much to help me get along in life. I do need to feed my family. i got to have a salary. I have to work or I have to work. Those sorts of things. And so there is this temptation to pastors to very easily then to neglect the poor and take care of the rich. In fact, Timothy, though, is exhorted, you remember, to warn the rich, isn't he? To warn them of the dangers of being rich itself and that the love of money is the root of all evil. And so pastors have to be concerned about that and they have to guard their own hearts. But I have you to know here, he's not talking just to preachers in verse 1 through 7, is he? He's talking to you and me. But he's talking to you. It seems I'm not the only one who could be guilty of this sin, does it? It seems that the the whole congregation or those in the congregation who could be in reality guilty of this sin. So don't sit there and hope this morning and say, yep, that's right. Preacher, you better watch that. I've been thinking all morning that's just a message for you. But you know what? James doesn't say it's for me. It's for you. Partiality. We were talking yesterday in our class about raising children and bringing children into the congregation and listening and and training them. And I brought out, you know, I wonder if there's a little bit of partiality. If a family came in here and their children sat like stones on the seat, we would be very happy that they trained their children up. It would probably cause us to want to gravitate towards them, wouldn't it? Then a family who comes in, their children are climbing all over the walls. 
uh, climbing under the seats, they really are your footstool because they're right up under you and they're not back there with their parents. Would not the tendency be to get... Uh, I missed the word. Wouldn't the tendency to be to be drawn to that family who had their children well behaved over the children or to the family who didn't have their children in submission? You know there would, wouldn't there? Paul said, or James here says, that's partiality. That's respecter of persons. So we need to be very careful. Satan can get in there and he can use all sorts of excuses as to why we should neglect others for these. It should not be. Third thing we can note here is the great care James gives in arguing his point. Make him then see the reality of this particular sin. And so the point of my application here is that those who labor with souls, or who will be one day, notice James' way of homing this into his readers. Notice how he brings in these things to their thinking. He has them at the very end to say, yeah, I have no reason but to be guilty if this is what I'm doing. James is a true pastor here, isn't he? He's cut off every avenue that the conscience might run to and find solace. You can't be this way, brother, he said. Labor to do that. Fourthly, see how our affections one to another is to be seen as a spur one to another. Again, brethren in verse 1. Verse 5, my beloved brethren. Our affections, brethren, do count. They're not to be laid aside. And we're to use those things as a stir to others. Remember Paul writing to Philemon? Have you ever noticed how Paul deals with Philemon? Paul says, I know you'll do this. You love me too much. So I expect this out of you. We can say the same and it be lawful. Brethren... I expect you to show no preference to people when they come in through that door. Because you're my brethren. And you have love one to another. Or any other thing we can make. If you see a struggling saint, I hope you can go to them and say, Look, because you are my brother in Christ, or you're my sister in Christ, or whatever. Look, don't do this, or do this as the case may be. Strong motivations. Number five, fifthly, see how the faith of Christ, here again in verse one, is used as, as a standard of judgment as well as a spur to us. This is not the faith of Christ to act like that, he says. For us to be partial in our thinking of others based on value of their estate is not like Christ. So in other words, think about that. For us not to have that that thought about others, to have that evil judgment upon other people's standard of living or the lack of a standard of living as far as financials are concerned. The fact of what Christ is, who He is, and what He's done should move us. I like to call them gospel incentives. 
That is, the beauties and the realities of who Christ is, what He has done, what He is doing, and what He will do for His people. They ought to stir us up to obedience. That's why we have four books of the Gospel in the New Testament. They're not just historical narrative. They're all, they're very good at that. But they also make us go back and to think about Christ in it. And to stir us to move and live like Him. Sixthly, just how do you, how do we treat those who come among us? We don't have any rescue mission people in us for us this morning, so I think I can speak a little freely. How would we act? We know when they come for the rescue mission, they don't have much, if any. Someone who may have a job and has lots, they come in among us. Is there not a temptation, brethren, to treat the person from the rescue mission differently? Oh, see, it makes a difference, doesn't it? Oh, it can be real to us, can it? See, would you take more time with a fellow who's nicely dressed, smells a little better uh, than you would from the person from the rescue mission? How would your heart react? How does it react? We We do have visitors from the rescue mission. Would you take the time for them as you would from everyone else? If not, what does James accuse us of here? Being respecters of person. We're partial in our judgments, which is wicked. You say, well, I just don't talk to anybody, so I miss it all again. Well, then you're just as wicked. You have more partiality for yourself than you do for anyone else. You haven't missed my swipe either. You're guilty of these things. So, brother, we need to examine our hearts. Seriously examine our hearts in light of this. This is attached to the end of chapter 1. And the reason I say that again, remember back up in verse 26, one of the ways that we show that we have, if we're religious, is that we bridle not, that we don't bridle our tongue. I got that backwards. Let me just read the verse. <laughs> if any man among you seem to be religious and bridleth not his tongue, but, is, but deceiveth in his own heart, this man's religion is in vain. So if we don't have a controlled tongue, then our religion is vain. You say, what does that have anything to do with what you're talking about today? Will you please look down in verse 3? Read it. Not out loud, but read it. I'll read it now. And you have respect to him that weareth the gay clothing and say, here comes the tongue action, doesn't it? Say unto him, sit thou here in a good place and say to the poor, stand thou there or sit here under my footstool. See, it is related to verse 26, isn't it? I wasn't just making this stuff up. I actually studied it. I know what I'm talking about this morning. The fact that our tongues enter into this, doesn't it? An unbridled tongue will say to the person who comes in who is poor, go sit under my footstool. You're not as important as the rich who comes through here. 
affected the tongue, didn't it? This is why, again, brethren, I spent a few more minutes introducing our text today than I normally would have because I saw the connection here. So we need to be careful what we say, not only about others, but what we say to others. And then lastly, this point that James is making in regards to being a respecter of person does not do away with the reality there are class differences among us. We ought to know that there are poor and there are rich. There are women and there are men. There are masters, at least employers, and there are employees. This doesn't erase that at all. It doesn't erase the, the, the commands that are binding upon men and women and rich and poor and masters and servants and so forth. Paul, James here is not doing away with that. But what he is telling us here, we need to be careful how we treat others with our mouths in respect to this. And brethren, this is what the gospel does. It causes us to be careful. And not to be even a respecter of others. Is that the gospel you believe this morning? You see, the faith of our Lord Jesus causes us not to be respecters of persons. Which do you have? 